I'll be quick. I, I spoke at episode one uh, a few weeks ago. And the, uh, the gist of it is, let me tell you first uh, who I am and, and what I do. I run a small business just like you do. Uh, only I do it in the context of an 800 lawyer uh, law firm with 20 plus offices coast to coast. Yeah, I think 18 states we're up to. Um, and uh, I'm sure you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, what does this big law firm have to offer me? Well, you should have been in episode one. Because in episode one, I explained why all the reasons you're thinking that you don't want to hire a big law firm are actually reasons you should hire a big law firm. So please go listen to episode one. I think it'll be available. It's, on the, it's on the website. Um, and the pack that you were given when you came in has the, the details of how to download the audio and the, the video. So beyond all the reasons you should hire me, um, I'm here because I, I think Eleanor and Bill and I share a lot of the same sentiments about Atlantic City. Um, I was born here, I was raised here, my wife was born here, my family goes back several generations in Atlantic City itself and then throughout uh, Atlantic County. And I just think this is a special place. I think this is a place that gives people opportunities you don't have other places. At episode one, I think I talked about how I had surfed that morning before work, I'd done a full day's work at a big corporate law firm, and then came to a really cool event afterwards. Um, I'm here because I see those same opportunities, and I think that uh, small businesses should have access to the same resources that big established businesses have, uh, and that that can help level the playing field a little bit. We, as a law firm, paid an absurd amount of money, I'm sure, to a very big um, marketing firm that came back and, and gave us a great slogan. And the slogan is, let our experience be your guide. Uh, we've been around for 100 years. Whatever it is, whatever question you have, whatever problem you have, we've probably solved it before. Um, and so I'm here because I'd like to offer those same services and those same opportunities uh, that Fortune 500 companies get and high net worth individuals get to small businesses. Because it's going to be, at the end of the day, it's the small businesses that are going to save Atlantic City, that are going to change Atlantic City. And it's people doing the things like Mark has done, um, taking risks, being in a neighborhood that I think it's safe to say maybe a year or two ago we might not have been hanging out here. I'll touch on that. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is great. I'm really, uh, I'm proud to be here. I'm honored to be here. I'm glad to have found partners in Bill and Eleanor who share some of that same vision. Um, and I'm glad that you're all here. And I think you're in for a real treat tonight. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jake. Um, and thanks again for making this whole event possible. Um, so I wanted to get started with the story of how Little Water came about um, because we really were standing here almost a year ago and we didn't, even then, you know, bits and pieces were being filled in but we had no idea that it would become the venue and the business that uh, I think everybody has talked about more than anything else in Atlantic City <laughs> the last year. Um, so please tell us the story of how it got started and uh, don't hold back on the don't challenges. Hold back. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I agree with the, the venue, but uh, I appreciate the, the flattery. And, um, you know, Bill, you remind me of something. I'm also a journalist, but I was yelled at Phil Murphy one time. So, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you about that after. Um, the, the long story short, and uh, if you ever take the tour, you'll get the same one. Um, the whole project started for us when we bought my father that, that copper still above the bathroom. He, uh, he turned 70, and it was, um, he just retired, just sold his boat, had tons of nervous energy. This is a German immigrant machinist that's been just doodling and kind of toiling with his hands his entire life, and all of a sudden he's got nothing to do with him. So we're like, all right, let's find something we can actually enjoy as well and, and kind of keep him focused on, on the important things in life, booze. So um, we got him that in January of 2013, and that's when, um, coincidentally, they passed the craft distillation laws in New Jersey. And um, my brother and I, um, I was living in D.C., he was in Ventnor, we were kind of traveling up to South Jersey to meet my father and, and work on this, and just kind of play around and reconnect as a family a little bit. It was, it was, it was really enjoyable and a, a real kind of fun time to see the adult father-son-son dynamic really, you know, at play at its finest when we're trying to one-up each other on something we know nothing about, you know, communally. Um, and we, we weren't even kind of focusing on the laws changing, but then about two months later, we saw an article in the paper, I think the first distillery was born in North Jersey, and um, we kind of read up on the laws, and we just kicked the idea around in our heads, and we, we said, you know, let's, um, let's keep thinking about this, like, you never thought about going into business together, we rarely even hang out together, let alone like each other that much, but... Um, Let's just kind of keep kicking it around. And uh, we gave ourselves six months to just play with some recipes and see if it's something we even want to do or even want to, you know, kind of get into. 
And by the time that date rolled around, we had the business plan written, we were going out to banks, and it was pretty much a done deal. Um, we, uh, we decided Atlantic City was the market for us for a number of reasons, um, none of which have really panned out. Um, I shouldn't say none of which have panned out. The, the reasons that have made this really special weren't the ones we considered originally. Um, our first thought was that this is a market that was somewhat in distress. Um, you know, it was going to be a very easy place to find affordable real estate. There was some very cool architecture. We could do a really cool building, whereas most of these spring up around the country in warehouse districts, you know, business parks, and very little um, exterior draw beyond that business itself. So you're constantly trying to pull people in to kind of create your brand. And we figured Atlantic City would offer an opportunity to, to draw on the, you know, the existing tourism market. You know, we did research on the convention business and how many people travel in every year. Um, but beyond that, uh, the law enabled something that's very unique in the industry and enabled uh, self-distribution. So liquor laws that govern um, alcohol production, distribution, and sales are, are very archaic and they date back to the, to the Prohibition era. And they were basically passed after Prohibition in an attempt to um, not allow monopolies to emerge. And, and, and in fact, what it did was create a number of monopolies, and it's, it's one of the, the most regulated, corrupt businesses in the industry. So typically, if you manufacture, you have to sell to a distributor, and you can't distribute or retail. And if you're a distributor, you have to buy from a manufacturer and sell to a retailer, and you can't manufacture or retail. If you're a retailer, you have to buy from a distributor, you can't manufacture or distribute. So there's this three-tier system that's been entrenched since day one. And this license actually allows um, a craft distillery at a limited scale, and that's 100,000 bottles a year, which is an enormous volume, to direct distribute, um, sell retail, and sell directly out of your distillery, as well as offer cocktails, tours, and tastings. So it was a real windfall if you were able to play it right. And that's another reason we chose Atlantic City, because we knew our market could be from Cape May to about Tom's River, um, and if we did it right, we could easily maximize that 100,000 bottle limit without ever having to go through distribution. Um, so that's how we chose this market. Um, I can go on for about an hour and a half, but let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that there were some challenges in terms of finding the exact spot that you wanted to be in. And I feel like you've kind of glossed over the... Um, the process of starting the business and I know you had this uh, great experience getting financing yeah. and writing a business plan maybe you can talk a little bit about that so, so that's actually where the challenges started when we, we began looking for help and trying to figure out how to, how to do this in Atlantic City um, and again we, we thought that kind of going into this you know um, real estate was going to be easy Atlantic City's got you know a, a, a bounty of available real estate and like I said great buildings and you know um, vacant buildings that would probably be you know available for pennies on the dollar um, we figured money was going to be the hard part so we we kind of threw ourselves into the process of you know applying for financing um, you know writing the business plan and trying to see what kind of incentive programs were there and we, we started by going to you know every agency every kind of business development um, program everything that we could kind of Get our, you know, get our eyes and, and, and you know, hands on, and um, as well as kind of passively looking for real estate. Um, as it turned out, money was the easy part. We had a pretty solid business plan, and um, financing came along probably two months after we started the process. We probably could have had it locked up in about a month, but we, we spent a lot of time working through some of the kind of business support programs, some of the incentive programs. You know, taking direction from far too many people, and none of it was really of great value, unfortunately. Um, we you know, chased down a lot of dead ends. We, we spun our wheels kind of going after things that just weren't available and following a lot of misinformation um, and ended up just going the traditional route. We, we received our financing through M&T Bank. Um, they were trying to make inroads into Atlantic City. We were you know, a unique fit for them. Um, and it, it was a pretty kind of bold move on their part because this was a completely unproven industry. You know, there was no baseline for it. Um, you know, Atlantic City was probably, you know, uh, traditionally a bit of a challenge for some banks, especially with an uncollateralized loan and, you know, two partners that had zero experience in the industry whatsoever um, and nothing but a great idea. So, you know, we were very fortunate in that we were able to kind of lock into a bank that wanted to expand this area, 
saw us as a decent opportunity and a, and a you know a worthwhile risk. Um, but you know, parallel to that, we, we kept pursuing different incentive programs and um, different you know uh, kind of hiring subsidies and everything under the sun that was kind of posted and kind of touted as available for Atlantic City. And, and um, you know, after probably I'd say five or six months working with the EDA, we, we realized and were told that well, they can't help us because their charter prohibits them from meddling in two industries: pornography and hard liquor. So, this was a very, very hard lesson to learn, you know, after... Five, five months in. At yeah. least five months in. And then probably still going back and back for some leniency because um, uh, a brewery in, in Cape May had just received an EDA grant. And you know, we're just seeing these programs all over the place and none of them applied to us. And to this day, we've yet to get one dime of incentive money, um, despite all the, you know, I wouldn't say all the, all the promises, but all the um, indications that it's out there. And you know, I think kind of the, the most important lesson and the, the thing that we never asked, and if anyone were to kind of approach me now, and they certainly have, we have a neighbor coming next door, um, and they're, they're a good case in point, um, DeWalt Brewery, who started looking for real estate about eight months ago, and, and not probably more than that, probably about a year ago, um, and planned to be open by this July, is still waiting to finalize their EDA grant, and hasn't even broken ground yet. Um, and. I think what I would what I would kind of recommend to anyone kind of following these programs and going to a lot of the kind of business incentive meetings and you name the agency in town um, or the you know the um, organization brokering um, incentives and, and different types of development money get a reference to someone who's successfully gone through the program received funding and whether or not they feel it was worth their while because. I've yet to come across anyone that's successfully done it, and that's not to say it hasn't happened, but um, there's a huge opportunity cost to not being in business. You know, I, I, I look at you know the business moving next door, and since the day that they kind of announced they were doing this, three breweries have opened up in the immediate area. There's another one that I just learned is opening in Summers Point. Um, they missed an entire summer with nothing else like it in the market. Um, by next summer, there'll be multiple beer gardens in town. And my guesses will probably thrive. There's a beer garden plan for right next door, and it'll be you know second or third you know string of best by the time they open. Um, and you know, they they missed out on a huge first mover advantage, um, you know, in the hopes of realizing I think it's up to a million dollar um, incentive in year ten based on fifty employees. I don't know a, a craft brewery with the exception of Cape May, which is one of the largest that employs. 50 people full-time, and that's after, I think, seven years of being in business. So, you know, you, everyone has to kind of, you know, take their own licks and make their own decisions and, and, and decide what, what works for them, but I, I would certainly, if I had to do it again, I would ask for multiple references, and I'd want to have the reference meeting with the person that was brokering the program, because it really is critical to get some some reality, you know, applied and superimposed on what the, you know, with the lofty program anything. And it's not to say they aren't out there and, and, and aren't you know, worthwhile pursuing, but um, being in business is probably a lot more valuable than waiting on something that may not come. Um, so I'm about to ask you a question that we, <laughs> we haven't actually prepared. <laughs> but I wanted to jump in. So Bill and I, um, we've occasionally applied for grants. Nothing's worked out. But we, you know, we were just having another conversation last night about how just sometimes when you're a small business, you just wish there was somebody else that you could talk to or somewhere out there that you could get some feedback or somebody to pat you on the back or hold your hand yeah. through like a tough day. Um, do you feel like having left those programs aside, that's something else that you've left aside? You... Um, no, I mean, I, I think, first of all, this town is full of advice. And, <laughs> you know, there, there's, um, there are many, many people out there that, will say they'll help you and they simply can't. There are, you know, a select few of people out there that, that could help could actually help you but, but won't because they're probably successful people as well and just don't have that much time and bandwidth to devote to another business that's starting when they're you know struggling themselves. But they've gotten to the point where they actually have some valuable input. Um, and and you know there's there's a few people that we, we found that we latched on to um, that were able to help and truly did. And 
you know, they're, they're few and far between, but when you find one, you know, I think it's very valuable to kind of stick with that person and, um, you know, offer a lot of appreciation and also offer to help because usually if someone is trying to help you, um, they're in a position that benefits from your success. And, you know, kind of find those synergies uh, have been very helpful and valuable to us. Um, but on, on a day-to-day basis, you know, I found the most valuable kind of sounding board I have is actually a very good friend of mine who I grew up with who's, you know, a successful entrepreneur. Completely different industry, but he's about seven years down the road from us. And, you know, he's just gone through the paces. He's learned a lot of mistakes. And it's not like, it's not the, the, the real detailed stuff. And, you know, it's a lot of the kind of touchy-feely stuff. It's kind of the way you approach other people, the way you sort of manage through problems, the way you kind of um, manage a partner and the expectations of that partner, the way you just kind of grapple with some of the things that, you know, you hear in pops like this, and it doesn't really re- really resonate until you're in that, you know, in that position. But it's absolutely critical because you can make just some gut decisions that are, are based on emotion or based on, you know, a misguided vision and having someone to kind of just soundboard those off of on a regular basis and, and offer that same feedback is absolutely critical. I know there, there are a number of missteps that I would have made so far if I hadn't been doing that on a regular basis. Uh, so just today we were talking about something that you wanted to mention. That So you kind of lucked into this place eventually, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. In terms of the real estate, a couple of other places fell through, you wound up here, um, Bill and I came to see you at the end of last year. Uh, we were really excited about this uh, whole story. Um, and uh, we, um, you know, we wanted to tell everybody else about it. Right. Um, and then you were saying that you didn't really plan or you weren't quite feeling ready to actually launch. Um, so, so what happened? I, I think that's, you know, there's a couple of really, really um, important lessons you know, in there. Um, be ready to turn on a dime when opportunity presents itself and don't be afraid to second guess your, your original plans and decisions if it looks like it makes sense in the moment. And um, you're absolutely right. The, coincidentally, this is the first building we looked at, not this space, but kind of the front corner space. And again, we were in this, you know, pie in the sky reality and we thought we're not locating on Baltic Avenue. We, we want to be somewhere like in a really beautiful building like the, the Morris Armory or, you know, some of these beautiful vacant, you know, parking garages with high ceilings and, you know, palladium doors and just, and, you know, we should be able to get it for five bucks a foot. But, you know, <laughs> no one's offering it five bucks a foot because folks would rather not pay taxes, sit on vacant property, um, than take a loss over a 10-year lease um, in the hopes that things will turn around. And we, we ultimately gave up on that, but we did find a firehouse right around the corner. We signed the lease on it, and we were super excited about it. It's a beautiful building with incredible bones, and would have been um, an absolute gem. And it was across from the, the planned Borai development, which is also, you know, in the process of breaking ground, but apparently wasn't actually breaking ground. Um, and that fell through after we signed the lease, and we moved on to Gardner's Basin, and we had a wonderful lease there, um, and we were getting ready to get started. We'd already hired an engineer and started doing some work, and. If you've all read the papers, you know what's going on with Governor's Basin. And I like thank God every day that we didn't take that space because we would have been looking at you know the same troubles that everyone else is. Um, and the capital investment in fixing up this place was, was significant, but the building in Gardner's Basin would have been almost double that. And we probably would have still been sitting here scratching our heads trying to figure out where all the money went. Um, so we ended up here. Um, it put us way behind, way behind our opening goals. And... Um, the city was very cooperative and very helpful, and I think it's because, one, you know, we're not contractors, although we were overseeing a lot of the work. You know, we were the ones that, that stood to kind of lose if things weren't moving forward as quickly as possible. Um, there was absolutely no long-term benefit to us to be difficult, you know, challenging, argumentative, um, because we knew those people that we had to kind of win over to get moving and open are the same people we're going to have to win over to expand and keep moving forward in the city. And you know, stand there like day after day and just watch contractors come in and just gripe and complain and pound the desk and do circles and bitch and complain with one another. And we would just go in there with smiles on our faces and just, you know, just nice down everyone we came in touch with. And, um, you know, it's a very powerful disposition, 
especially when you're working with people that get nothing but grief all day. Um, so fast forward to uh, late November 2016 and we are nowhere close to being ready. And I, I did come from a wine, beer, and spirits retail background and the company I worked for was the largest um, wine, beer, and spirits retailer in the country. And as a company, we made 40% of our top line revenue between the two weeks leading up to Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve. So in six weeks, you're generating 40% of your revenue, which is an incredibly critical time, right? So we're not even licensed yet, and it's already passed, or like the week leading up to Thanksgiving. And we just, we were thrown in the towel. You know, we're this far along, we're going to do it right, because I did not want to open up and be kind of half-assed at anything we've done, or we were going to do and bring to market, especially trying to create that first impression, which you can only make once. That's it. Um, and along come Bill and Eleanor, and, and they, uh, I don't know if it was an email or a text or a call or something, and we had no idea where you were because we had not been reading papers or opening anything other than like, you know, contractor emails and bank emails and have no idea what's happening around us and um, had no idea where you guys were. And we, I think we uh, set up a, an interview and I, I think uh, your kid got sick or something like that. So that one fell through. We didn't even realize it was you. Um, and so we, we kicked it forward a couple of weeks. And again, we still had no idea what, what, what they even did. You know, we just thought that you were a couple of bloggers that were coming to say hi. And, um, you know, Bill whips out his camera, and all of a sudden we start like doing this like video interview, and uh, Eric and I are both just uh, kind of enjoying the moment, but not really sure what was going on. Uh, they post a story either that day or the day after, and the next morning Eric comes into work looking, you know, as disgusting as we did all summer when we were like scraping walls and painting, you know, columns and everything else. And there's like an ambush interview from someone from the AC Press, and they printed that night. And those pictures are still ridiculous, and if I could delete them from the internet, I would. But uh, they're out there. And, um, you know, we knew that there was some interest and in, in kind of um, awareness of, of this business getting started, but we also, you know, we, we wanted to hold off on really kind of doing anything uh, interview-wise because you can only create the buzz so many times, and we didn't want to waste it unless we were launching. So article popped, and we're like, all right, we're going to stop what we're doing, and we're going to start bottling and you know, this is one of those lessons about being able to turn on a dime when opportunity presents itself. Knowing what I knew about you know, the value of those six weeks leading up to Christmas and being willing to avoid it just because my anal retentive type A personality says we have to have every nut and bolt painted before we sell product to market even though our loan you know, comes, comes due like next week. Um, we sold 1,500 bottles in just under four weeks without even trying. It wasn't even, there was no marketing plan behind it. It was simply kind of you know, the power of, you know, interest in what we're doing, you know, the newness of the product, you know, the juxtaposition of the holidays and the shopping season and kind of the invitation by a number of retailers to come in and do in-store tastings, um, that things really took off. And, 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 you know, I can't tell you how flattering it is to know that people heard about what we were doing and came in to see us. And, you know, you know, we were expecting to sit there twiddling our thumbs and just, you know, dusting off bottles and whatever. And it, it was, you know, I can't imagine what would have happened had we gone into January with that loan due, our first payment, and trying to launch a product when people are completely hibernating in the alcohol industry. Like, no one is thinking about buying blues or trying to kind of, you know, use off what they, what they have left over from, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Um, and, and we may not be having this conversation right now. Um, so it was, you know, absolutely um, kind of quintessential that we just did what we did when we did it. Um, so kind of following on on that theme, do you, uh, I mean, I think like Bill and I have held back from launching parts of our website or from starting certain projects without being completely sure that they were ready. Um, do you, Do you still think that that's true? That that first impression is is really key, or do you, I don't know. <laughs> I absolutely feel that way. And um, I can't tell you how many people like say, hey, I've got to follow your batch one. Um, I haven't opened it yet. I'm saving it for something. I'm like, please do. Please do. Because it was terrible. It was nowhere ready to go tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd much rather have that sitting in a closet somewhere for some kid to turn 21 in 15 years than someone drinking and be like, oh, my God. I, 
how are these guys still in business? So, yeah, it was rough. It was rough. And um, it, it's, you know, we got away with that mistake because we were new. And because people were interested and because it was Atlantic City. And little things, I probably ought to back up to, you know, the question earlier about, like, locating an AC. The, the, the real X factor that we never really considered was that there was so much pent-up interest in a good news story coming out of AC. It was staggering. I mean, things that we just, last-minute considerations, like our neck label has ACNJ. Little square in Bergen Blue that has ACNJ. Last-minute change that we put on it. No good reason. I didn't even like it. I thought it looked a little bit, you know, kind of hokey at first. And it, it sells the day. I mean, people absolutely just zero in on that. Everything else in the label is... And I can't tell you how much, how much time and effort we put into things like labeling our products. Our, our rum is Liberty and Prosperity. That's our rum. That's the New Jersey State motto. It's so fun to tell it to us because no one knows it. <laughs> no one knows what the Jersey State motto is. And, and you know, we design the, the map. The watermark map is a, a mariner's map of Atlantic City, and the word Atlantic City for the location passes right across Atlantic City on the map. Um, just so many things that we just spent so much time dialing in, and that. ACNJ that we slapped on the neck label just really sold the day for us. Um, but yeah, that's when like the opportunity really, really kind of manifests itself for us. That, that what we weren't marketing ourselves on and what we weren't really trying to sort of um, exploit, and I'm glad we didn't because we probably would have done a lousy job at it, was the fact that you know Atlantic City is, you know, I guess, or was, you know, the, the engine of, it, of the economy and, and people are just dying for something to, to come back and help revive it. And unbeknownst to us, like, I think we were sort of schlocked into that and, and that, you know, we're kind of the poster children for what that could be. Um, and I'll kind of go back to something else I think about Atlantic City, which I think is really serendipitous and really critical. Eric and I are not from Atlantic City. Eric is... Uh, from Ventnor, but Atlantic City has been a suburb for him. He's always been like Ventnor and, and further south. Um, and I had zero contact to him. So, you know, I can't tell you how many times people ask us, is it safe to park there? And I, 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 I want to smack him because I'm like, what kind of an asshole do I look like? Do you really think I would have like thrown everything I everything away? Like, you know, moved my entire family up from Virginia, like left everything behind, thrown care to the wind, if I wasn't willing to come to work every day or sleep on that couch if it's like three in the morning, we're not done yet, or, or, or leave my car here for a weekend. Just, but the problem is like the legacy, I think, of, of being in Atlantic City limits the perspective of what the opportunities really are. And, and to this day, we still get questions like that all the time. And, you know, how's the market? How's, or how, you know, how's the neighborhood? How's the, I'm like, it doesn't matter. We come every day and we do our jobs and we manufacture and we distribute and we retail and we tour and we host. If I worried about, you know, something that was kind of deep in the back recesses of my brain from like 1983 or whatever, I certainly wouldn't be here. And I think there's a really unique correlation. I'd love to see someone throw some time at it to see, you know, the value of, of investment from non-AC natives versus what happens from AC organically or indigenously. Because I, most of the people that I sort of kind of connect with or, or that I see sort of taking a risk and, and not being concerned with anything other than the future are either people that were from the area and left and came back um, or people that have no connection to it whatsoever and just drive in and see, you know, there's a beach, there's a convention center, there's, uh, you know, plenty of hotel rooms, there's, you know, a bay, there's docks, there's restaurants. And that's without even looking at the numbers and actually applying statistics to it and seeing what the real, you know, density of, of tourism is and, and the, you know, um, the potential for the economy is. It's staggering. And, and, you know, we just happened upon it because it was an easy distribution market for us. And, and that, that's, you know, I guess good fortune on our, on our part. But um, I like talking to people that are, like, out of town and exploring the market more than I do people that are in the market kind of naysaying it because it's the same story over and over and, and there's so much opportunity that's just kind of being ignored and, and left on the table um, and it's for fear of something that may have already happened or, or, or that, that, you know, a ghost story that their grandpa told them or something. I, I, I just don't get it, you know. 
I really don't. And I, I think that um, in this case, there's a real value to not having any legacy whatsoever. Do, um, do you think there's anything that you miss out on by not having any local connections? Um, no, you know, I don't because it, it, it makes it really interesting. I mean, you know, every time we meet someone new, and we've met some tremendously interesting people here that, you know, the day after our grand opening, well, I'm sorry, the day after our grand opening, I slept. The Monday after our grand opening, uh, the former owner of this building came in, and he was like two occupants or three occupants ago, and he heard about the opening, he saw the address, he came in and spent three hours with us just doing nothing but talking about, you know, what this neighborhood was, what this building was, what it was used for. And I could have spent 13 hours with him. And I've tried desperately to get him back, but uh, he's very old and doesn't travel out much. But um, he's one of many that has just come in and just told some unique story about this area. It it keeps it interesting. If I knew everything about this area, I probably could care less about it. But the fact that there's um, so much history here and, and so many kind of unique stories that kind of contribute to our interest in, in what we're doing here and why we're doing it and just digging into like again serendipitous history so when we started um, tearing this place apart you know we had to, where you're sitting right there that entire floor came up um, to put the trench drain in well anytime you put a shovel in the ground anywhere on this property from that corner lot all the way across this one you're going to break prohibitionary glass this place is just littered with prohibition-era glass and artifacts, and there are people that have been digging here for years, excavating them and selling them on the, on the collector's market. We've got a few in the bathroom, including a, a firearm that someone dug up for us, and it was just, you know, he was like, hey, here's a gun. <laughs> you, you gotta be kidding me, that's awesome. You know, he's like, nah, we dig them up all the time. And there's a story behind that, and it's a great story. It really contributes to sort of, you know, our customer experience when we take them through and tell them how, you know, how we found this place and what we found out about this place. And, you know, the, the corner lot um, right here has a, um, a tavern called the Tumble Inn. And I learned about this in a zoning hearing. And uh, the oldest zoning officer there just stopped the person speaking to me. He's like, I know that place. That was a Tumble Inn. They say you used to walk in, but you tumble out. And I'm like, I, I got to grab this guy because he just, he was full of like really cool stories about the area. And that made sense as to why we were finding all these prohibitionary bottles. And then when we went to dig up this area, or the contractor did, and realized that there were brick footings every eight or ten feet that he had to, you know, fight through and try to bill us for it, which he never got. Um, it's because there were apartment buildings that were here, and there were uh, there were speakeasies in those apartment buildings too. And they would just throw all the evidence right out the back door and, and bury it and you know one redevelopment after another it goes in the ground deeper and deeper and deeper but it's all there for the taking and it's just this you know this wonderfully like fascinating story about this corner that like I said to someone that lives here they, they'd ask you know do you feel safe parking here? I'm like it's way more interesting than whether or not I feel safe parking here you know there's just so much more in this area that you know Someone from the outside gets the experience and really enjoy, then someone who's worried about driving a car past or leaving their farm. All right, so I want to go back in time a little bit to uh, you have a grand opening, you have your launch, your impromptu launch, <laughs> you're at maybe batch number two at this point. Um, and I know everybody starts to latch on to the fact that this is a really great event space. Yeah. And you're getting a lot of requests and you're interested in helping people out who want to hold events here. Um, and we talked a little bit about how easy it is to kind of waver from your business plan. Can you? Yeah, that's, that's a real challenge, actually, as we're doing an event here tonight. Um, <laughs> we are not only at our core, but you know, our survival depends on us kind of adhering to our business plan and our operational plan, and that is to manufacture and distribute products. That's why I said Atlantic City was ideal, not because of the, the, tourism, or the tourism kind of industry, but because we can direct ship north and south within you know, about an hour's drive and hopefully you know, um, disperse all our inventory or our, our manufacturing capacity. And um, we found that it's very easy to just say yes to any opportunity to kind of like hold an event here or have a party here or do anything that, you know, involves like kind of reverie and alcohol. But it's very difficult to do that in a manufacturing space. You have to stop manufacturing. You have to clean up. You have to retool. And there's a huge opportunity cost of doing that. 
Um, you know, this past summer was, there was a lot of trepidation every time we did it for a number of reasons. And, and for me, because, you know, I'm on the sales and marketing side and my brother's on the manufacturing side. Um, our customers are bars and restaurants in Atlantic City and outside of Atlantic City. And every time we do something here that involves more than just tours and tastings on a weekend, I worry that you know we're competing with the people that we want to really promote our products to, and we want to sort of be brand champions for us. And it's a very, very kind of you know tight line, and it's a quick it's a quick buck. You know, you can you can generate income from the bar and from the event space, but at the end of the day, all it did was put cash in the till that night. Um, and you know, at worst, it alienates other businesses that are you know concerned that are they you know are they a bar now? Because I thought they were distillery, and they're asking us to buy their product, but they're also having events that our customers are going to. Um, and I you know, I draw the analogy to the Jersey wine industry, and I I don't want to disparage any industry that that's kind of struggling to stay alive, but um, you know, go back twenty years and, and you know people start planting vines and, and making wine because they could do it. Or it was some family tradition and, and you know, they opened wineries and you know everyone realized this, this wine's terrible. Um, but it's a beautiful location, it's on a farm, you know, it, it's a great place to have a wedding. So, you know, people are, are kind of coming in droves to plant events and go to Mother's Day and tour and drink the blueberry Grenache or whatever, but like, you got 30 bucks a bottle, but you'd never buy it in a store. You'd never spend that kind of money, but you'd certainly have a wedding there. And the, the wine industry is fighting very, very hard to kind of stay relevant in the actual wine industry. In the tourist industry, they're doing quite well. But in the actual wine industry, you know, no one travels to New Jersey to buy the wine, or no one ships wine from New Jersey back to California because it's great. They might visit when they're here, but um, they basically forewent the reputation of their product, which is why they got in business in the first place, um, to chase the almighty dollar because it was easier to get by holding events than it was to manufacture a good wine. So, in most wine, like when you see, um, you know, a New Jersey Malbec, it just means they bought a big third of Malbec from Argentina and they're bottling New Jersey. And maybe they're mixing some concrete grape with it or some cranberry juice or who knows what. But it, it, it's, a, it's a, a very um, risky proposition to do that where we are right now in the young industry because. There is no reputation for Jersey spirits. It's new, it's unique, but it doesn't have a reputation, yet, and it can go in either direction. And you know, as an industry, we're forming a guild right now to try and help sort of develop those standards. It's it's critically important to sort of stay focused on your business plan. Um, for us, in particular, because you know we're not in the event space, we do tours and tastings, and frankly, you know, we love doing it because it's, it's brand development. It puts us in touch with. Um, you know, potential customers, but it, it's always a challenge to make sure that, like, when we're mixing a drink or when we're explaining anything, that it goes back to the, the most kind of critical piece of the business that, you know, like, I, I preach to myself and I preach to people that work with us and I preach to our customers and our retail partners that this brand lives and dies on its authenticity because. As a manufacturer and a distributor of distilled spirits, we're competing against Green Goose, Tito's, every bourbon made in Kentucky and elsewhere, um, rum from the Caribbean, and a lot of you know very well-established, um, strong international products that have a huge marketing machine behind them. And you know, I'm very proud to say that um, our marketing budget, aside from Guys, who does an excellent job at our social media is zero, with the exception of one ad we bought just as a courtesy in a, in a magazine. I think one person came in; they complained that the hours were wrong. So, like our advertising budget, our you know, print, you know, um, and kind of radio or TV or billboard or whatever, absolutely zero. And I hope to keep that way as long as possible, because you'll never compete on the scale with the marketing power of large national brands. So. For us to do anything other than use this space to teach people about what we do, kind of demonstrate why we're doing, show them the process, you know, and really kind of um, you know hand pour them the Kool Aid, but 
because you know we stand behind the product and, and the quality and you know the effort that goes into it, and you know hope that they buy it not because it's local. I absolutely you know, discard that buy local notion you know, every day, and you know I think that's just a slippery slope to failure. Um, but because it's, it's it's a value, it's qualitative, and for some reason whether it's you know um, emotionally or you know. Gustatorially, it resonates with them. They like the flavor, or they like the story, or something about that experience of, of learning how it's made, meeting the people that made it, trying it in the distillery, enjoying some of the really wonderful cocktails that our, our super talented staff put together, um, makes it a value for them. Otherwise, buy something else that is. And, and um, you know, by just doing tours and events, the value gets diluted very quickly. We did it a huge 150 person. Um, bar association event, and anyone here from the bar association? I wasn't here. I learned very quickly that um, when you do events for an organization with a purpose other than you know displaying and showcasing your operation, people aren't there for that, and you lose you know the ability to really kind of. You know, win that person's heart and kind of deliver that authenticity message because, you know, they may say, "Can I have a, uh, you know, can I have a gin and tonic?" And we don't make gin, not yet. We don't have tonic, or we don't make rum and coke because that's just that's too pedestrian for us. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, without learning anything or knowing anything about the, the product or the process or why we do what we do, um, we've lost that person's interest. In fact, they leave disappointed and. I can say, you know, like, knock on wood, I don't think anyone has ever walked through here and taken a tour with us and sat down and talked and met that didn't walk out and just, like, expelled them. And, and that's absolutely critical, you know. But to have, like, 150 people come in and be disappointed because they didn't have their favorite drink, that's a big loss. And maybe we made a few bucks off the evening, but it wasn't worth the time and the effort, and we could have spent that money uh, or earned that money by delivering 10 cases to a retailer you know, servicing customers that really find us interesting. Um, so I'm putting, uh, I'm making a mental note to ask you uh, why you're not all in on the buy local theme, um, but I'm sure somebody out there else is, is also interested in that. But um, what I wanted to kind of change tack and talk about is how you get through the days where it's hard to get people in the door. Um, you're making sales calls like out in Cape May, it's mm. a long way home, you're tired, you're exhausted, there's 50 emails that you have to answer um, and a million things that you need to do. Um, how do you get through those days <laughs> when the things are tough? It, you know, it's, um, it's pretty easy actually. Um, and I, if you would ask me to put a 60-hour weekend for anyone else, I, I curse the last 25 hours, but you know, we're, we're, we're on like 100 hours a week, and you know, we're at home probably doing even more than that. Um, because this is just this is what we decided to do, and this is what, like, just kind of the, the, the ability to sort of like do something where you're just firing on all cylinders and engaging all your senses, and um, kind of realizing like how hard you have to apply yourself to make a difference and seeing that difference occur um, and, and knowing that, that you know, the benefit of that effort accrues directly to you is an extremely powerful motivator. It really is. Um, I, I, I don't, at this point, like we're barely a year in, I don't stress about like, oh, it's a long day. I stress about like, damn it, I wish I had five more hours because we're so, you know, <laughs> we're so close to taking care of this or that or the other. You know, I, I, I'm looking for more hours in the day. That, that's where I am right now. I, I certainly wasn't there before doing this. And um, I truly wish I could find them and I'd throw myself at them for this business. Because, it, you know, once, once you're in, once you, you really kind of take that leap, first of all, you know, and, and your, your, you know, your survival depends on it. That's also a pretty great motivator. Um, it's not that hard to do. It really isn't. I may not say that in five years, but right now I've got a lot of energy to give. I really do. All right. Um, on that kind of positive note, I wanted to ask you as well what you're most proud of so far. Oosh. Let me, let me <laughs> my answer. Let's see if it's still, still true. Uh, turn that page. 
you know, yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things I'm absolutely most proud of is that that bottle of Liberty rum is exactly what we planned to do three and a half, four years ago. Like, exactly. Um, we knew why we wanted to do it. We knew what we liked about it. We, you know, we planned it to be exactly that for that very reason. You know, the story behind it, the, the motivation behind it, um, and the fact that we brought it to market is is incredibly, you know, um, satisfying. And, and the fact that just kind of on a whim, we thought through the process and, you know, like two or three years later, we're, we're, we're doing this. And I must have spent seven years trying to decide whether to do an MBA. <laughs> you know, I ultimately didn't do it. I did something else. But like every year I would just kick myself, like, why don't you just do it? You'd be done by now. And this is one of those things where, you know, the clock was ticking. And, um, you know, we, we put a plan together and we executed on it. And it was in, like, you know, pretty, you know, pretty good harmony with my brother and partner. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's extremely satisfying. And it, it's hard to take the time to just sit back and look and, and, and just say, hey, good job, you did it. Um, because it doesn't feel like the job's anywhere close to being over. Um, but... I take a lot of pride in that. And, and I, I take a lot of pride in, and I think Eric does too, in kind of just latching onto something that we both found motivating for a number of different reasons. You know, not, and, and the least of them were, were kind of financial gain, which is good because we certainly haven't realized that yet. But um, like just the whole process is still, you know, that, that's, uh, there's, a, there's a nameplate on it, it's Rosa, and that's uh, named after my grandmother. Um, and, and, some of the fondest memories kind of growing up and some of the most kind of inspirational things that we just experienced as kids always came from her. She was just one of those like tough as nails, you know, human beings that, you know, survived like two world wars, fled through Germany and um, Slovenia and um, Poland and ultimately ended up in Germany and then emigrated back to the U.S. or to the U.S. rather than working on a farm. And, you know, she just tells these incredibly like, you know, endearing stories about um, like living in, in, you know, small town Slovenia and, if you wanted to stay warm, if you wanted to sleep in a warm bed, you always slept in the still house. Because if there was any firewood, it, it used to eat the still, you know, and not the bedrooms. And it's just these cute little stories that didn't really, you know, mean a lot to us as, as young children as we got older and kind of realized kind of the value of hard work and the value of a buck. And just those, those like kind of incredibly, like, important lessons that she just carried with her and, and delivered without even thinking twice about it. Um, I think really played into our motivation to do this and it, 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 it's very kind of honoring for us to be able to kind of say we've done this and we've followed through on it and the inspirations and the motivations were ones that we would stand behind no matter what happens. All right. Is there anyone who has any questions? No, let's All right. So, here's the... Popcorn break. I'm, I'm, I'm like a projecting mind. This was very much a summer of that, and um, you know, every time it came up, I would tell myself, yes, but we're a manufacturing business. We're going to do this one, but we're a manufacturing business. And we've gotten a lot better recently at saying, nope, because that just doesn't fit our profile. That, you know, um, someone wanted to do a huge Halloween party here on Halloween, and <laughs> we said, absolutely not. I'm sure it'd be a blast and a blowout, and we could probably do a great job. And we would do nothing but, like, give you the building and you plan it. But how many other bars and restaurants are planning, like, a Halloween blowout? And it's a, it's a huge pain in the ass for us. You know, it really is. Um, it's a moneymaker, sure, but the next day we're just cleaning up, you know, everyone else's mess. And, and we're not manufacturing. So it's, like, two days of, of missed manufacturing and focus on the real business. So, like, going forward, you know, and, and I've done this all summer, but I've said we will do it because we need the cash. Um but only, you know, if it fell into these parameters, you know, if it was for, 
um, you know, a cause that we were very much supportive of, um, if it kind of fit within sort of our, you know, our belief that this is a non-competitive event and it will essentially bring in people and allow us to kind of give them an experience that is focused on our products and our operation, that we can tour them on, that we can kind of share our, you know, our, our operation and our brand and the authenticity behind it, um, rather than just let them have a good time in our building. Um, and so, I mean, that's one, certainly. Um, the other, like, opportunities, you know, I, I probably should have touched on this earlier because this is, a, this is one of the challenges in starting a business in Atlantic City, is that I have never come across a nonprofit industry like it exists here. I mean, before we even opened, we were getting hit up every day for a donation to this and that and the other and participate in this event and that event and the other event. And we did it all because it was very flattering, you know, to want to be included. And, you know, it was great exposure for us. But, you know, we also kind of quickly realized that I don't think we even really believe in half this stuff. Like, you know, they're all good causes, but you know, we could spend our whole lives just doing nothing but good things for, you know, people that are trying to be good. But at the end of the day, we've got a business to run and we've got to figure out how to sort of, you know, align our values with, um, you know, benevolent opportunities and make sure it's a win-win. And, you know, we, we again, serendipity struck when we launched our vodka, which was never intended to be a product line of ours. But we found ourselves in the middle of vodka town. That's all anyone cares about. Like, when are you going to make your vodka? When are you going to make your vodka? When you, we're not making vodka. That column, well, that still does not make vodka. Um, so we sourced vodka for our gin program because gin is essentially vodka redistilled through botanicals. And we're like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a limited distribution vodka that will only sell in Atlantic City. And that's going to serve two purposes. One, it's going to shut these people up. And two, um, give us an opportunity to try and create a product that actually could benefit Atlantic City from, you know, a tourism standpoint. You know, if we, if we only distribute in Atlantic City and we market it as being kind of based around and supportive of Atlantic City, and we can really kind of entice and, you know, work with the, you know, the beverage management community to create like really interesting, cool cocktails with it. And if that resonates with their customers and people want that drink, they've got to come to Atlantic City together. If they want the product, they've got to come here and buy it. It's not available anywhere else. And um, we still love the idea, and we we have a program that's coming up that is going to sort of move that forward even further. But, you know, it's just like one of those opportunities. I'm glad we didn't forego it, but it was one of multiple opportunities happening six months after we started the business, and we just couldn't quite get our hands around really, really, um, you know, like fleshing it out and, and just kicking it, you know, in the high gear. But it's fine because it's, it's doing wonderfully. But on top of that, we kind of gave ourselves an opportunity to really figure out who we were from a benevolent standpoint and, and who, our, like, who, who we kind of value and who we want to support. And we chose the name 48 Blocks because Eric chose it. And it, it happened to um, just coincide with the Atlantic City Arts Foundation launching their 48 Blocks program in Atlantic City. And we've always sort of kind of considered that like one of the um, like one of the loyalty groups we'd like to win over. Like we we really you know appreciate that scene. We feel like like small businesses or new businesses and the arts are two things that really contribute to a vibrant urban community. And um, it was a no-brainer, you know, to kind of pair up with them. And uh, you know, we decided that for every bottle we sell, we'll, we'll give 50 cents back to the Arts Foundation. And that would be both our handshake to the, to the city, as well as our, our, our support and handshake to the arts community. Um, and a way to kind of really focus our, you know, our, um, our nonprofit and our, our, you know, kind of whatever benevolent, you know, energies. Um, and it's easy, too, because it makes a lot, you know, having a purpose like that and one that we kind of really believe in and real, like feel strongly about because at the end of the day, we kind of describe ourselves as paint makers and we want people like Rigo and the other like people in our, in our beverage management staff to, to, you know, create artwork with it and really do special things with it. And if we give them the right paint, they can do really, you know, great work. Um, that there's just, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a parallel and a synergy there that we kind of want to capitalize on. Um, other than that, you know, just, 
I think we're limited by the amount of time in the day. <laughs> you know, yeah. We really kind of turn opportunities away unless it's going to cost us money. But uh, it's just you kind of picking the ones that you can address and, and hoping they're the right ones right now. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to quickly ask why you don't uh, go all in for the buy local theme. <laughs> because like, what does that mean? Like, what, like, why buy local? Like, what's the like, what's the benefit of buying local? Like, suppose local sucks. Suppose I'm making, you know, like uh, cranberry, blueberry, grenache, Quebec <coughs> wine. I know my my response is I like buying something that I can walk around the corner to get, um, and I feel like I'm supporting people that I live near. I, I I definitely agree with that, and I think if it's worth my time and money to walk around the corner and get it because it's not cheaper three miles up the road and the convenience is, is beneficial. But if the person around the corner is selling it at such a high price and not the stuff that I really want and enjoy, um, and my money is worth, you know, spending on things that I, that I really appreciate, then I'd rather have the stuff I appreciate. And maybe that'll, you know, direct the person around the corner to buy some better stuff and inventory better stuff or produce better stuff. But I feel like if people were just, you know, patronizing our, our business and buying our products because they're made here, but they don't really drink them. They just give them away as gifts, like batch one. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, all of a sudden, like, after the dust settles, our reputation is like, ah, they're, they're cute, but the novelty's over. You know, I hope they make it. Then buy local didn't help us at all. Mm-hmm. When, when any of those products refuse to leave our dock because no one's placing orders then the market corrected us and that's what it should be doing. And I, I, look, if, 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 there's, if I'm not delivering value, then I shouldn't be in business. If I am delivering value, then buy the hell out of local, mm-hmm. you know, but only if it's valuable and only if it's worth the money that you're spending on it. Uh, otherwise, I, just, I don't see the point. That's me and I, I don't expect everyone to, to, to agree with that, but there's a sign up there behind all those balls or those bottles that says buy local. And that was a gift, and I felt bad not putting it up there, but I covered up the <laughs> lots of rough stuff, so no one thinks it's actually mine. She's not here tonight. So you think by good, by good things. Uh, so if you take a walk through Walmart right now, do you spend your money on things that are close and local, or do you spend your money on things that are good value? Uh, you know, I, I work for my money, so I, I spend it on things that are good value to me. You know, if I go to a restaurant and... It's right around the corner, but they're charging, you know, 13 bucks for a hamburger and it's okay. I'll drive to the five guys and get a great one for seven um, because that's value to me. And, you know, 13 for, for a short walk is not value. But that's me. And I, you know, I have to kind of live and work by my values. And, you know, I don't expect other people to look like, you know, if people want to buy local and, and patronize us because that's, that's part of their ethos, then, hey, more power to them. But it's just not part of ours. That's all. We try, you know, um, to buy as many of our raw ingredients and raw materials and, and, and supplies locally. But a perfect example is, you know, we, we source, we try to source everything from New Jersey to the extent possible. And, you know, our bottles are, are um, from a supplier in North Jersey. There's no, no more glass suppliers down here. It's, it's really sad, you know. Um, we were hoping to get something from like, you know, a spinoff of the wheat industry because you know, there's such a, a, you know, a rich history of glass manufacturing and bottle production here. We're like, there's got to be something cool that we, there's nothing. Um, so, you know, the next best option was um, in Garwood, New Jersey. And, you know, they have like seven of the bottles that we wanted. And, you know, they, they have access to a number of different lines, but there's a, there's a distributor in Pennsylvania that has the full line. They were willing to bring it in and, sell it at 20% less. And we're like, it's a business. I'd love to give you my money, but you're not delivering the value that this guy over in Pennsylvania is. And unfortunately, that's just how we stay in business. Mm-hmm. By you know, seeking out value, you know, kind of bringing it into the fold and, and trying to re-deliver that to our customers. Um, I wish there was a bottle distributor around the corner that could undercut everyone else, but there's not. Anyone have any positive response questions? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know anything about the process. Does um, the Atlantic City water supply have any effect on the taste of your... you got to 
back for the tour. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the, um, the things, you know, in our, our vodka that we kind of really preach is that, um, and here, here's, here's Distilling 101, um, vodka by definition has to come off distilled at 190 proof, right? So every bottle of vodka you buy is 80 proof because that's also a labeling requirement. So that means at least 55% of every, every vodka that you drink is water. So water makes up, you know, the, the majority of the character. And, you know, Atlantic City has a spectacular water source, you know, drawn from the Kirkwood Cohansi Aquifer. There's some water that's drawn from the 800-pound sand aquifer. Ours is drawn from the Kirkwood Cohansi. Um, but, you know, it's an incredible mineral profile. It's, you know, highly esteemed and, and annually rated as some of the top water sources on the East Coast. Um, so absolutely. And that water goes in at the very end. That's proofing water. And that is it's truly like the water that comes out of the tap or out of the well. Um, is what kind of, you know, flavors that water or, or makes up the character. You know, it's when you buy, um, you know, a bourbon from Kentucky, it's generally proofed back with limestone, you know, well water. And it's what gives it that minerally kind of cloying flavor. Um, you know, we think Atlantic City has some pretty interesting water as well. And we, you know, try very hard to kind of include that in our branding message. Okay. So the answer is yes. Yeah. Great positive response question, by the way. <laughs> All right. Let's get some drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody.